Hello, and welcome to Avatar, the podcast. Or should we say the desert? Because that's where we are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where there's no water. And I don't understand why Appa is flying with the moon. Because Yue can just fly up there on her own. She doesn't need Yue can fly by herself. I don't she understand need what's going on. And why are you on fire? This is weird stuff going on. <laughs> There's a lot of things happening in this desert, but whatever you do, do not drink the cactus juice. Why? It was the quenchiest. Don't do it. Just just <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> we are your hosts, Acorn Bandit and Booster Greg, and today we're going to be talking about the desert, or as we like to call it... Angry about Appa. That's right. This episode was written by Tim Hedrick and directed by Lauren McMillan. And it also, fun fact aired originally alongside the library as part of a one-hour special called Avatar, The Fury of Aang. It's very interesting because Netflix has decided, as we've learned by going through just into future episodes, that they've combined different episodes that weren't two-parters and have left episodes that are two-parters in half, essentially. It's very, yeah, I've very been interesting. noticing that. Yeah. So for anyone wondering what's going to be happening on the next episode, we are going to go with the Netflix ordering. Uh, so we will be covering the next two episodes that end with the drill. So, so everyone's aware that that's just what's going to be the case. So if you're going through the, the list and go, wait a minute, why is there only 16 episodes of Avatar the Podcast for book two? Blame Netflix. That's what I'm, that's what I'm going <laughs> it's with. All it's all Netflix's fault. all Netflix's fault another thing that they're doing with Avatar. <laughs> Before we get started, we do also want to give a quick reminder that we have a Patreon now and we would love and adore your support. Avatar the podcast is something that we do out of love for the series and we do it in addition to our day job and there's a couple costs that go along with that. So if you want to support us or if you love what we do and want to help us do it better or more easily, please consider pledging. That's right. And as Acorn said, every penny that comes in through this goes right back into the podcast and works on making things better. If you're interested in in helping us out a little bit, even just like maybe buying us a cup of coffee or something like that, you can go over to patreon.com slash avatar the podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash avatar the podcast. And we'll we'll of course have the link in the, the show notes for sure. Exactly. Personally, my favorite part and pats on our backs for coming up with this concept, we've divided the pledging tiers into nations. So if you are super passionate water tribe individual, or if you are a diehard Earth Kingdom fan and you want to pledge, head on over and pledge to your nation. And that's right. And there'll be a fun little surprise for the winning, let's say, nation at the end of every month. So the top nation, the, top the elite nation, nation, the yes, yes. So there are more details at the Patreon. So definitely go check that out. Yes. And without further ado, let's jump into the desert. Mm. This episode opens moments after Appa was taken by the sandbenders and Aang, Sokka and Katara narrowly escaped the library before it vanished under the sand. We see Team Avatar gazing out into the empty desert in different directions, suddenly lost without their furry friend. A defeated Aang turns on Toph and yells, how could you let them take Appa? Toph explains what happened and tells Aang that she can barely feel what's happening in the desert around her because of the shifting sands. But Aang doesn't listen to reason. He's too angry. He continues to blame Toph until Katara steps in to talk him down, reminding him that Toph is the one who saved their lives. Aang decides to go after Appa and takes off on his glider. Katara, ever the voice of reason, tells the others they should get walking. They have priceless information about the solar eclipse and they have to get it to Ba Sing Se. I love that little quip that Sokka gives at the end there. You think if we dug up that giant owl, he'd give us a ride? (laughs) I love Sokka. His little quips are are amazing. And I think it's interesting to point out right here, the kids, I'm going to call them right now, are really in this kind of predicament because it's like going after your friend or getting this really important information 
to the right people so they can help defend themselves. So they really kind of stepped up, except for Aang for obvious reasons, but they really stepped up for the sake of all good and, you know, helping out their side of this war and just saying, all right, we got it. We got to press on. We have to just go to Ba Sing Se and we'll figure out Appa after that. Yeah. It's not even getting themselves out of the desert. It's we have information that's pertinent to the war. We got to tell someone. So that's why we got to get out of here and also save our lives in the process. Yeah. From here, we cut to Zuko and Iroh riding on their stolen ostrich horse. Iroh moans loudly and in exaggeration until Zuko offers to stop so they can rest. Once they do, the rough rhinos surround them. Iroh recognizes Colonel Munka and greets him, saying it's a pleasant surprise to see him. Munka does not agree, though, telling Iroh that if he's surprised to see them, the Dragon of the West has lost a few steps. As he says this, each rough rhino draws their weapons and makes a show of force. Zuko asks his uncle if he knows these guys, and Iroh tells him that yes, he does. The rough rhinos are legendary. Each one is a different kind of weapon specialist, and they are also a very capable singing group. When Iroh was like, oh, my stomach or back or whatever it is, he said, I'm like, I was like, he knows something's going on. What is going on? And then all of a sudden the rough rhinos show up and I was like, hey, I remember those guys. And then I was like, oh, I see. Interesting. Interesting. So there's that whole drunken master thing coming. This one's a lot more obvious than in the past, but it's really bringing it to the forefront. And I love how they haven't gotten rid of that reject Yuyan Archer yet. Uh Because that guy's terrible. (laughs) He's not great at his job. To be fair, none of them are. We've seen them how many times now? Three. And they've like gotten beaten so fast each time. Yeah. They looked really menacing in this. I don't know what it is about this episode, but I feel like the style was a lot sharper than what we've seen in the past. Like everything was. Yes, I agree. More vibrant and sharp. And I was like, this is interesting. And these guys look more menacing. And then as we see, they just end up being chumps again. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they trick yep. me every time every time i see him i go oh they might be formidable this time no yeah exactly <laughs> monka threatens iroh by telling him they're here to capture fugitives but iroh doesn't appear concerned in the least he offers monka and the other writers tea telling kachi a man holding a long guandao that he must be a jasmine man when Munka orders the rhinos to round up Zuko and Iroh, Agade swings his chain bolas at Iroh, who kicks them away to wrap around one of the Komodo rhino's legs. Iroh rolls across the ground and springs up to smack this Komodo rhino on the rump, which startles it into taking off, dragging Agade along with him from the other end of the chain. Bachir, the former Yuyan archer, or the budget Yuyan archer, the reject. <laughs> Fires two flaming arrows at Zuko, who easily blocks them. Zuko and Iroh parry, block, and evade each attack until they are able to escape on their stolen ostrich horse. Iroh looks over his shoulder and smiles, saying, It's nice to see old friends. When Zuko replies, Too bad you don't have any old friends that don't want to attack you. Iroh appears mystified and thinks on this. Old friends that don't want to attack me. He trails off. I think it's really funny that Iroh slows down on purpose only to just like humiliate the rough rhinos, not even just like kind of beat them, just like humiliated. And he's like, oh, yeah, my friends, see you next time. Almost like that (laughs) Bugs Bunny, Elmer Fudd kind of like feeling where where obviously the rough rhinos will be the Elmer Fudds of this situation. And he's like, all right, cool. Good, good job. Good, good times. Can't wait to see you next time. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So long, folks. Nice, nice. Good, good, legally distinct (laughs) difference. (laughs) Yes. Oh, man. A note on the rough rhinos, actually. I've been sitting on this for so many episodes. I'm excited. Yes. So here's their history. Let's wrap this all together because we've seen them three times, but Mm -hmm. here's their impact on the story. So originally, the rough rhinos were the ones who attacked the village where Jet was living with his parents, which ignited Jet's lifelong hatred of the Fire Nation. But that's not all. From there, they invaded another village at the Western Earth Kingdom coast, forcing the residents to become refugees, including Than and Ying, the traveling couple that we see in Zuko alone. Oh, wow. We are also going to see them again next episode. Spoiler, not really a big one. Yeah. But yes, the man and his pregnant wife who we see next to the fire as Zuko's passing by, they were made to become refugees by the rough rhinos. Huh. 
From there, they ambushed Team Avatar in a forest near Chin Village, then later invaded the Chin Village itself during Aang's trial for the murder of Chin the Great. As we remember, Team Avatar kicked their butts pretty easily. Yeah. Back then. No problem. No problem whatsoever. And here's a fun one. They then confronted Team Avatar once more in a small Earth Kingdom village where they captured Sokka, mistakenly believing him to be the Avatar. And this was in a comic called Sokka the Avatar. I cannot wait to read that one. I hope we can. I want to say it was like a one-off. I don't know if it's going to be included in one of the trades. I can, I'll get my best guy on it and we'll find it. Okay. Okay. I trust I trust your guy. You know some you, good you guys. You shouldn't trust my guy. He's terrible, but <laughs> it's great. And finally, in this episode, the rough rhinos surround Iroh in Zuko near the Great Sea Wong Desert. So that is the history of the Rough Rhinos. And I don't believe we're going to see them again, but that is one, two, three, four, five encounters in this show. And what do they have for all that effort? Um, Big bunch of nothing. Big bunch. No, they got bruises and probably some scabs and maybe a scar <laughs> or two. I don't know. I don't think they have anything. And of a lesson they'll never learn. A lesson in humility. There you go. <laughs> Knowledge is worth everything, right? <laughs> They're rich. Only if they use it, which they're not going to. They very much remind me of like the archetype of just like the big gang, like tough alpha male gang that just loses like horribly. They're actually just wimps and they just like are terrible. Yep. That's what they are. I, I love that they're in there. It just makes life so much funnier for me. <laughs> they absolutely are. So long, Rough Rhinos. It was good knowing you. Mm hmm. Katara, Sokka, and Toph slowly make their way across the Siwang Desert under the hot sun. They're sweating profusely now, and when Toph runs into Sokka, he complains about how much their sweating is making it easy for them to stick together. <laughs> and it kind of literally stick together. He had to, like, yeah. peel her off of him. <laughs> it was very gross. It was gross. Toph asks Katara for water, and Katara bends three large blobs of water into the mouths of Toph, Sokka, and Momo from her bending pouch. After tasting it, Sokka realizes that Katara used this water on the Swamp Guys, and Toph agrees that it tastes a little swampy. I'm sorry, this is all we have, Katara tells the others. Not anymore, Sokka exclaims when he spots a nearby cactus. Yes. Without waiting for the others, he runs over, hacks off a piece of cactus, and drinks the trapped water inside. Katara warns him against drinking from strange plants, but Sokka insists that the cactus juice is very thirst-quenching. This has so much energy of little kid who gets into things and mom is like, she can't keep up. She can't like keep him from getting into messes. And I love how Katara even like goes, Sokka, wait, and then turns and grabs Toph's arm and pulls her after her. This yeah. is like the ultimate Katara mom episode. So I, I got that vibe off of Katara and Toph, but I didn't get it off of Katara and Sokka. For me, the so vibe Sokka is giving off is that like, failed adventurer boy scout where it's just like i know what to drink and what's safe and he doesn't and he's just like this is great and just drinks it later on i agree absolutely yes. in this episode but this moment i didn't quite feel that just yet that whole water being trapped in a cactus is actually something that happens in real life and much like we'll see in this episode it has very similar hallucinogenic and sometimes even poisonous effects so mm. it, it's very similar to LSD. So what Sokka is experiencing is very, very, very close to the real world. <laughs> so no one, if you see a cactus, don't hack it open and don't drink the water, please. Yeah. You know, now that you mention that, I have seen or heard or read a lot of like scenes or concepts where a character will drink water from a cactus. Mm -hmm. But yeah, probably not the best idea unless yeah. you are able to identify what a poisonous cactus is. Yes. There would be nothing worse than tripping on something hallucinogenic when you're trying to survive. <laughs> it's like the the last thing you really want to have happen is to see things that are not there because you'll be having mirages yeah. alone anyways. Yeah, exactly. Oof. Unless maybe you have a Katara there to take care of you. And even then, just hope she's a quicker Katara than Katara <laughs> in this episode. And smack that out of your hand. Yeah. Suddenly, Sokka's eyes dilate and we enter the warped reality of cactus juice. In a strange, echoing voice, Sokka says, Drink cactus juice. It'll quench you. Nothing's quenchier. It's the quenchiest. I love that so much. 
I love it so much. This is so iconically Sokka. <laughs> yeah. He says this as he caterpillars across the ground. He walks over to Toph and asks why she's on fire, while above them, Momo, who also drank from the cactus, flies around in small, fast circles until he falls to the ground. Katara, or Mom, <laughs> scoops Momo up and steers both Toph and Sokka away from the cactus. As they set off again, Sokka asks, how did we get out here in the middle of the ocean? I love these little one-liners that he just like peppers throughout the whole episode. Me too. <laughs> We join Aang where he's flying across the open desert, blowing into his bison whistle and calling Appa's name. He lands and, in a fit of pain and anger, he blasts a sand dune with a gust of wind, causing a giant mushroom cloud to form in the sky. Katara and Sokka see it in the distance, and Sokka flails happily over the giant friendly mushroom. And this is also so iconically Sokka and is probably one of my favorite gifts on yeah. Twitter and social media. I, I love like that too. Flailing back and forth going mushroom. He's just like worshipping the thing almost. It's <laughs> yeah. so good. Oh man. Back at the Misty Palms Oasis, Shin Fu and Master Yu learn from a local man that Aang and Toph passed through a few days ago, but went out into the desert and never came back. Shin Fu notices a collection of wanted posters nearby that include Aang, the Blue Spirit, Zhang Zhang, Che, and a poster of Zuko and Iroh. He spots the young prince and his uncle arriving at that very moment. Look who's here, he says as he watches the duo enter a tavern. I, I do want to make a point very quickly that yeah. uh, the voice of Master Yu, we all knew when we first met him that he is uh, Sab Shimono, who is on many voices in Avatar, but also does the voice of Uncle from Jackie Chan Adventures. And that's all oh, that's I heard right. in this episode is that portrayal. So I don't know, like I didn't hear it when he first met Master Yu, but he also didn't talk to too much. Yes. But in, in this one, I can just hear him yelling like, Jackie! And just like saying, <laughs> one more thing! And like, uh, like, it just, I felt it. And it just brought me back to childhood. It was really cool. My brain picked up on that when I was watching the episode, but I didn't make the connection. So yeah. yes, 100% me too. I wonder if there was some time in between the two recordings and whatever the voice actor had prepared for the first episode, he like drifted from. And so he gave a different performance now. It, it's also a, a common thing. And this is after a much more time than what we had with Master Yu. But it's, it's a common practice where a voice actor will find the character and the voice will change over time. Like if you if you watch like season one of The Simpsons versus the current season, you'll hear that like Homer sounds a lot different and Marge sounds mm, a lot different. True. So like, I mean, that's a very extreme example because that's like 50 million years of Simpsons right there. But it is very common to have the voices evolve over time. This one was just a very quick evolution. So I don't know if they were just like more uncle from Jackie Chan, please with this one, or yeah. if they felt he was maybe a little too flat uh, back in the blind bandit. I don't know. Which could be because he was very like self-contained yeah. vocally in the blind bandit. It's true. Yeah. Interesting, but fun reminder. Mm. It's nearly twilight in the desert and the trio are still walking in a single file through the sand dunes. A shadow passes over their heads and Aang lands behind them, kicking up a small cloud of sand. As the sand clears, Aang remains crouched on the ground. Katara walks over to him and puts a hand on his shoulder to comfort him and reminds him that they can get out of the situation if they work together. She tries to get Sokka and Toph to agree and offer ideas for how to get to Ba Sing Se, but finds them delirious and out of it, Sokka more focused on four buzzard wasps circling above them in the sky. With deep resolve and determination, Katara gathers her wits for the entire group and formulates a plan. We're getting out of this desert and we're going to do it together. Aang, get up. Everybody, hold hands. We can do this. We have to. Oh, be still my heart. I love Katara. Yeah, she definitely comes through in this episode. Like, she is the more emotionally mature and very much. Is she older than Sokka? I honestly don't remember. Or are they just like a year apart? They are a year apart, and I think Sokka is older. Okay, okay, I kind of think, yeah. But usually, isn't isn't the um, the saying, or the, I don't know if it's an old wives' tale or if it's a fact at this point, but I feel like that women and girls mature faster than men. Oh yeah, I yeah. think there's some scientific backing to that. I just forget yeah. where it came from. <laughs> yeah, and and that is very obvious in this episode between Sokka and, and Katara for me. But also, he is also tripping. So <laughs> there's that. <laughs> True. <laughs> Oh, boy. They walk for the rest of the evening until the sun slips below the sky, and Katara suggests that they stop for the night. 
She bends the rest of their water out of her pouch to offer to the others, but Momo jumps through it and the water splashes to the ground. (laughs) Sokka, who is still under the influence of cactus juice, cries out in theatrical despair. Momo, no, you've killed us all. It's so <laughs> theatrical and dramatic about it. It's so good. Oh my god, it killed me. Yeah. And then Katara, this is the best part. It's the it's the duality of their two responses. Katara with like no emotion is just like, no, he didn't, and just bends the water <laughs> out of the sand. <laughs> Katara asks her brother to show her what he took from the library. And after a quick paranoid spiral where he blames Momo for ratting him out. Katara takes one of the astronomy scrolls from his backpack and suggests they rest during the day and travel by night when it's cooler. Her plan falls on deaf ears, however, as each member of the group is absorbed in their thoughts. Just try to get some sleep, she says. We'll start again in a few hours. Yeah, Yeah. just with every scene. I love how Katara is like the backbone, the voice of reason, the brains, and basically just the driving force for the entire group right now. And I just, I adore her. She's my favorite. Yeah. She, um, see, I viewed the scene like a little bit differently, but not too much differently. Where when she was like, all right, everyone, you know, we'll travel at night. We're going to sleep during the day and that's how it's going to be. And then they're all just passed out pretty much. And she's like, okay, everyone just like, she does have that motherly tone where she's just like, all right, everyone just. Take a couple hours and I'll stay awake and we'll try again. It's just like, oh man, really coming through on this episode. I feel like this is a good part to talk about Siwang Desert. Mm -hmm. I learned that Siwang means to die or death in Chinese. And the Death Desert or Death Valley is a famous desert in North America. And I think what they based this desert on. Isn't it really interesting that deserts have this association with death or dying but there is mm-hmm. there is in fact just so much life in a desert it's just a different kind of life exactly yes two things on that actually i recently watched a show a, a nature show on netflix that focused on i think the animals that came out at night and mm. they had this whole segment of desert life and how there's like all these creatures that live under the the sand who will live off of cactuses and not hallucinate off cactus <laughs> juice because they know how to do it right and all of that. So, yes, the, the desert is teeming with life, but it's just a different kind of life. Yeah. Iroh and Zuko sit inside the same establishment where Team Avatar met the professor. Iroh spots a man sitting at a nearby table with a pie show board before him and comments that he thinks he's found their friend. You brought us here to gamble on pie show, Zuko says. I don't think this is a gamble, Uncle replies. Nearby, Shinfu is impatient to capture the two travelers for an easy bounty and has to be restrained by Master Yu, who points out this place is full of desperate characters who would do anything for some easy money and advises patience. Iroh approaches the pie show table and asks if he may have this game. When he places the white lotus tile in the center of the board, Fung says, I see you favor the white lotus gambit. Not many still cling to the ancient ways. Those who do can always find a friend, is Iroh's reply, and they begin what appears to be a ritualistic game understood only by the two of them, which eventually creates a lotus formation with the tiles. Welcome, brother. The white lotus opens wide to those who know her secrets, Fung says. Zuko, meanwhile, is confused and a little irritated by this display and asks what these old gas bags are talking about. I always try to tell you that Paisho is more than just a game, Uncle says. It's true. He's been saying that since the first book right in the beginning. One quick thing about, well, two quick things. A, super double entendre with that white lotus opens wide. That was like, I was like, that's oddly phrased. Uh, number Super. two, I was like, that's uncomfortable. Uh, number two, Fung is voiced by Peter Jessup. And uh, Peter has done voices for Fallout 4, uh, Mass Effect Destiny, and voiced Albert Wesker in the, I think it's the GameCube version of the Resident Evil. I think it was like a remaster or something that came out in 2002. Oh. Yeah. So he, he does uh, quite a few voices, uh, especially in games. Oh, wow. Yep. Well, I enjoyed his performance here. It was very good. I don't think we see him again, actually. This might be the only time. That's unfortunate. I liked him. Yeah. Shinfu loses his patience and goes for Iroh and Zuko. But Fung exclaims, I knew it. You two are wanted criminals with giant bounties on your head. And tells Shinfu, you think you're going to capture them and collect all that gold. The word gold catches the attention of the other patrons. And as Fung intended and you feared starts a brawl that allows Zuko and Iroh to escape. 
that this was one of those moments where uh, Zuko was like, I thought you said he was a friend and we can trust him. <laughs> and he, and uh, Iroh was just like, wait, hold on, patience. <laughs> wait for it. And it's all just wait a giant it. distraction and this giant bar brawl happens and it's so good. Yeah, yeah, it's so calculated and so wonderful. Yeah. Just like that game of by show. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, in the desert, Katara wakes everyone at night so they can continue traveling. Yesterday, my mouth tasted like mud. Now it just tastes like sand. I never thought I'd miss the taste of mud so much, comments Toph. <laughs> <laughs> when Katara goes to wake Aang, she discovers that he's already awake. He sits up and looks at the sky and brightens for a second when he mistakes a cloud floating in front of the moon for Appa. Appa, says Sokka. But why would Princess Yue need him? She is the moon. She flies by herself. <laughs> uh, hilarious. Also kind of heartbreaking because he's still thinking about bit. Yue. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when he's like a little out of his mind. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, that's when you usually think about the loved ones that you've lost or or whatever along the way most. Yeah. The really strong emotions, the really in- impactful events in your life. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Aang realizes his mistake and goes back to being disheartened, but Katara urges him to fly up to the cloud to collect whatever water he can. Aang angrily snatches the pouch out of her hands and glides off. He isn't able to collect much water and blows up at Katara when she comments about the amount he was able to gather. It's a little uncomfortable to watch Aang so angry and so dark in this episode. It's like it made me realize that I've taken for granted his bright, sunny personality. Yeah. Yeah. There's um, I think it's a point a little bit later. I can't remember exactly, but where he yells at everyone for only thinking about themselves and like how Appa's missing and how like, you know, selfish they all are. And that statement in and of itself is super selfish on Aang on Aang's yeah. part because it's like it's his friend. And granted, like they've been together forever. And that's really the last piece of home that he has. So he's rightfully so very upset, but he kind of just becomes very hypocritical he becomes very hypocritical yeah in his judgment of everyone else and maybe it's just him projecting onto them yeah which is really easy to do when you're super emotional about something when you're angry or hungry or tired (laughs) actually related i recently this year learned this little nugget of wisdom that has changed my perspective of everything okay if you ever feel like everyone hates you you need to sleep if you hate everyone else, you need to eat. <laughs> Fair. And that is held true. Ever since I learned that, I will have moments where I'm like, oh, I guess I'm starving because I'm super angry right now. <laughs> anyway, they continue on until Toph stubs her foot against what she claims is a boat under the sand. Also, I just love this moment where she stubs her foot and she's like, ah, why is there a boat here? And all you can see is this little like triangle of wood sticking above the sand. Yeah, that that also made me wonder how people in the Earth Kingdom, specifically earthbenders, walk around barefoot all the time and like how messed up their toes must be. Oh, they're probably calloused out the wazoo and able to step on thorns and not get punctured. Oh, yeah. Ugh. That's a gross visual. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Aang uncovers the object with airbending, revealing a sand sailor similar to what the sandbenders use to travel across the desert. Katara spots a compass on the boat and realizes Aang can use airbending for the sails. We're going to make it, she exclaims. Also, in this whole portion, ever since Sokka and Momo drink the cactus juice, it culminates to this scene where Sokka's burying Momo in the sand like he's at the beach and giggling about yeah. it. Just him and Sokka, him and Momo. I mean, it kills me. It's so good. They did such a good job animating and storyboarding out like a cactus juice trip. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like when he's burying Momo, it's not even like he made him a mermaid or anything like that. It's just literally just like half under the sand and he's just giggling. Like it's the funniest (laughs) thing you've ever seen. Exactly. (laughs) It's like just a regular lump of sand. It is killing him. It is the funniest thing in the world. Iroh and Zuko are led into a flower shop by their new friend, who tells Iroh what an honor it is to meet such a high-ranking member of the Order of the White Lotus. Zuko, still unconvinced as to how plain Paisho will help them, makes a derisive comment about flower arranging. Iroh apologizes to Fung about Zuko's lack of appreciation for the cryptic arts. After an equally cryptic exchange through a door with a thin slat opening, Iroh and Fung are led into a back room. But Zuko is shut out and made to wait in the flower shop as the room is for members only. Mm. 
this whole part is very speakeasy-esque. Yeah, it is. And it's it's really cool actually to learn about speakeasies in the 1920s and prohibition and that sort of thing because it was very like smoke and mirrors, very like cryptic, very like shielded. So the whole concept and what's really cool is there's still speakeasies around the world. The whole concept behind speakeasies is it's a bar or a gathering place in a location that is very unassuming. So an example is you would go to a shoe shop or mm-hmm. like a tailor yep. and it would be a regular storefront. You see shoes, you see tailor tools, you have employees. But if you go and you give them a special catchphrase or a special sentence, they will let you into the back through like this hidden door. And in the back of the building, there's a bar and you can only get there if you know the special phrase. So this is very much like that, where the guy on the other side of the door says, who knocks at the guarded gate? And Ira replies, one who has eaten the fruit and tasted its mysteries. And then boom, they're let in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, really quick, I want to give it just a brief history of the White Lotus. And I'm not going to like there's a whole a whole page on the Avatar wiki. So if you're interested in this, I would highly rec- recommend checking it out. But what I found interesting is what the Order of the White Lotus can be tasked to do from time to time. Yeah, let's do it. So everyone knows they're like a secret society, very much based off of like... Like the Freemasons? Freemasons, yes. Thank you. Like I couldn't think of them. Very much based off of the Freemasons in a way uh, with all of these like codes and stuff like that. But they have been known to be tasked to train and find the Avatar. Oh. Which I think is super interesting considering what we were saying about Iroh not too long ago. And how he knows like the basic principles of each of the different bending techniques. And oh, we man. even made the joke of like, oh, yeah, like, like Iroh should have been the Avatar. Like, I wonder if he would have been if Aang didn't get trapped. And I think all of the members of the Order of the White Lotus, or at least the higher ranking ones, have that same understanding as Iroh does. He just kind of put it into practice into his fire bending to get a new technique out of it. But it's just what he knows because of being a part of this society. I think that's crazy. It's so cool. That's crazy cool. Also, he's a master in the order. So he is at one of the highest ranks, which makes me think he has more knowledge. He has more like world awareness with Mm -hmm. the avatar, with the nations and bending and all of that, which, you know, makes complete sense after we've seen Iroh for what, a book and a half now. Like, of course, he would be one of the high ranking members of the Super Secret Society. Yeah. (laughs) Like, it's so his MO. They've done so many things in the show. And one of them is making sure that we're aware that Iroh is so overpowered in the best possible way. So when they were like, oh, it's so high ranking, I was like, yeah, I know. We all know. That's not a surprise. (laughs) It's a surprise to Zuko, I think, but no one else. Yeah. Oh, my God. Zuko's so oblivious here. It's so funny. Like, he's not picking up the context clues. He's just like, what are you gas bags talking about? What's this pie show thing? What's this flower shop? What are you doing? (laughs) I couldn't find out when exactly the Order of the White Lotus started, uh, but they were Mm -hmm. active in the time of Avatar Kuruk. So that is a little ways back. So that's very interesting to me. Yeah. Wow. Super cool. Yeah. And of course, we're going to see more of the White Lotus, which I am super excited about. Yeah. Yeah. And there, like I said, there is more, but it goes into Korra. So we're not at Korra yet, obviously. So I'm not going to talk about that, but I can't wait. And I'm so excited that it continues into Korra. Yes. All the best things continue into Korra, including a a certain cabbage merchant. (laughs) I love him so much. (laughs) Aang uses his airbending to propel the sand sailor across the sand. Katara mentions that she doesn't think the needle of the compass is pointing north after comparing the direction to one of her star maps, when suddenly she sees a huge rock formation ahead. She realizes that the compass must be pointing towards it, which means it must be the magnetic center of the desert. Toph is ecstatic to learn that they are headed towards a rock, and Aang appears to be vindictively hoping to find some sandbenders. Aang is out for blood this episode, and again, it is very uncomfortable. It is very reminiscent of Dragon Ball Z in that way that that Goku can just like flip on a dime like that and just go from like goofy to super serious. And maybe it's just because I'm I'm watching Dragon Ball Super right now. So everything is kind of through that lens at the moment. (laughs) You have said that before. I said that before too, before I started rewatching it. But it's, it's, I think, just even more in my mind now where like he goes into Avatar State and that's like for me just going Super Saiyan. So like I can make that connection very easily. But yeah, he's very angry and somber and like, 
he is super serious. So a lot of that joy that we had in book one and even most of book two so far is just gone. And I think this is a big maturity moment for Aang and the series as a whole. Yes. It's crazy. Absolutely. Going back to what we said in book one about how certain shows like The Clone Wars Mm -hmm. starts off kiddish and fun and then goes into these deep, dark areas and explores some major topics. Yeah. Clone Wars, Rebels, Young Justice does it as well. It's I I love it so much because it grows with the audience. And I think that's just amazing. Yeah. Super special. Mm hmm. Katara sees this compass, and obviously we find out here that it's pointing towards this giant rock. I want to talk about the rock a little bit because it was super interesting. Yeah. Si Wong Rock is the magnetic center of the desert. And obviously, if the all the sand sailors have the compasses attached to them, all the sandbenders would be able to find their way to it and also around the desert, around it, by using that as navigation. I found out, though, that the Si Wong Rock is much like Uluru the Great Sandstone Rock Formation located in Central Australia, as they share similar cave features and creation myths. We talked a little bit about the Siwang tribes and also the beetle-headed merchants, but the Siwang tribes believe in a pantheon of gods. And according to their ancient lore, these supernatural beings showed their might and anger by dropping the massive Siwang rock onto the desert people when they no longer followed the rules of the priests. So talk about a creation myth. That's super cool how like there's tribes of desert people and then the gods when they were angry dropped this giant rock out of the cosmos on top of them. And that's why the rock is there. Yeah. It reminded me of Death Mountain when I saw it from uh, Close Encounters. Yeah. In uh, what, Arizona or Nevada? Nevada. I I think it's Nevada. Uh, Close Encounters of the the Third Kind is where I first ever even saw it as a thing, which was really cool. It is Wyoming. We were both wrong. Wyoming. Wow. I'm an East Coast person. Sorry. (laughs) My geography is like up and down the East Coast. It's, you know, it's somewhere not in the East Coast. It's it's over there. It's somewhere over there to the West, like in the middle. Like drop a pin. It's probably there. Like three quarters of the way more to the West. There you go. (laughs) Not quite California, but like a little (laughs) bit towards the East. Yeah. It's over there. It's over there somewhere. When they reach the top of the huge rock, the sun is already starting to rise over the horizon. Toph falls onto the rock and makes a rock angel. Again, she is very excited to have solid footing. Yeah, she is. Oh, jeez. The gang explores one of the many odd caves they discover in Sokka, only a moment after commenting that he thinks the cactus juice is wearing off, sees what he thinks must be honey and stuffs a glob into his mouth. This is the mom moment right here. Yes. (laughs) This is very much a mom moment. Yeah. Sokka immediately spits it out and complains about feeling woozy and Katara reprimands him for licking something stuck to the wall of a cave after just hallucinating on cactus juice all day. (laughs) So good. God, I love them. Yeah. Toph, who has been feeling the wall of this cave during this exchange, tells the others that she doesn't think this is a normal cave. Its structure points to it being carved by something. Suddenly, she feels something buzzing and it's coming towards them. They rush outside and are followed by a dozen buzzard wasps who appear out of the many tunnel-like caves in the giant rock formation. Team Avatar defends themselves, Aang with airbending and Toph by launching giant slabs of rock into the air. But when one of them almost crushes Sokka, he says he'll take over the attack and then viciously (laughs) swings his machete through the air, only to be told by Katara that there's nothing there, Sokka. (laughs) I guess it hasn't quite worn off yet. What the heck are you doing there, Sokka? (laughs) I, I, I want to take a moment. Because I think everyone would be very angry at me if, if I didn't say this. I super appreciate that they combined a buzzard with a B for the pun alone in the name. They're buzzards. Yes. It's amazing. <laughs> I was laughing so hard. I like paused it for like a good couple of minutes. I was like, this is brilliant writing. You should get like an Emmy for this alone. Just for this one creature. Brilliant. Absolutely. Well oh, my add, God. Add off to you. One of the wasps snatches Momo and takes off away from the rock, and Aang follows it on his glider. Sokka, Katara, and Toph make their way down the rock to get away from the rest of the flying buzzard wasps. On their way down, Katara lines Toph up and tells her to launch a rock right there in the air, and it actually takes out one of the buzzard wasps. That was really cool. She was just using Toph as like, or she was Toph's eyes, which is something that you see a lot of in like team up stories, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, I appreciated that too. Aang gains on the buzzard wasp that took Momo and flies below it so he can use a gust of wind to blow Momo out of its grasp. 
He freed his friend, but Aang is still angry and vengeful and uses another gust of wind to knock the buzzard out of the sky, seemingly killing it in the process. The camera cuts back to Aang's dark expression before he leaves, with a concerned Momo slinking behind him. This is such an understated moment, but we have to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Aang, the monk, who was raised as an air nomad to respect life, to never kill, to be a freaking vegetarian, just killed another living being because mm-hmm. that is how angry he is. You know, going back to what we talked about before about we make stupid decisions sometimes when we're emotional or angry or hurt. This, I think, is one of those moments. And I it made me wonder if he ever thought about it afterwards, like off screen, if I can like go into the the headcanon here a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if that haunted him. I don't know if it haunts him so much as, again, it's a maturity thing where he realizes that as the Avatar, while he was raised in this way of life, he has to break it at some point. It's just an inevitability. He is supposed to keep the balance between the elements, between the spirit and the physical world. There is no way that that responsibility can entail not killing anyone. And also, I'm pretty sure he's killed people, like people, by accident, when he's like bending all that air around and like going into Avatar states. And like, I think that's the big meme, too, I've seen online where it's just like, hey, he hasn't killed anyone. Everyone's like, well, like, let's just really (laughs) look at this wake of destruction that he leaves. I'm thinking of the big koi spirit here. Yeah. Well, like, I think this is the maturity turning point for him. Yeah. Where he kills the living being. And while I'm not saying he's like a psychopath and just like, oh, I killed someone. Okay, bye. And then just goes like, you know, being Aang, it changes mm-hmm. him, but it's a change that was inevitable. Yeah, I can see that. The maturity theme, I think, is really what it comes down to because this is a turning point for yeah. Aang. He went from being, God, can you think back to the Aang that we see in the first episode who wants to go penguin sledding? Like, yeah to now yeah oh my god yeah. so much growth so much maturing for sure katara continues to guide Toph in her airborne attacks when suddenly huge pillars of sand erupt from the desert around them and push the buzzards back to the top of the rock where they retreat to their tunnels the sand clears to reveal several sandbenders with their sand sailors at this point ang returns and lands in between the two parties looking angry Aang again demands to know where Appa is, destroying a sand sailor to make it known that his patience is thinning. The leader turns to his son Gashwin and asks what he did. Gashwin denies any wrongdoing, continuing to insist that Team Avatar are the thieves, but Toph states that she heard the son say to put a muzzle on Appa. This statement pushes Aang over the edge. In an absolute rage, he crosses over into the Avatar state and destroys the remaining sun sailors. Frightened by this, Gashwin confesses he took the bison without knowing it was the Avatars and apologizes. But Aang, still in the Avatar state, demands to know where Appa is. The Sandbender can only tell him that he traded Appa to some merchants and that he's probably somewhere in Ba Sing Se by now. This is not the right answer because Mm -mm. Aang goes even further into the Avatar state and a sphere of air surrounds himself. The Sandbenders are frightened by this display of power and Gashwin begs for mercy by offering them safe passage out of the desert. But his pleas fall on deaf ears as Aang is too far gone to consider the offer and an alarmed Sokka pushes Toph forward by the shoulders and shouts to the Sandbenders to run, which they quickly do. Katara, as she has been in the past, is the only one who doesn't run from the sandstorm and from Aang in the Avatar state. As Aang begins to rise in the air, she approaches him, grabs his wrist, and pulls him down and brings him into a tight embrace. With tears streaming down his face, Aang lets himself be calmed. This part was just like everyone's running for their lives and Katara is just standing there. She's holding one of her arms. It's very calm. She walks up to him, holds his arm. He like whips over and he has this like crazed like angry look on his face and she's just like come on pal yeah get get down from there katara is so tired at this point but she as always is there for ang especially when he needs her most which is so nice to see and just that moment where he's in the avatar state she comes up and touches him and he turns on her and he's still wrapped up in all of that pain and anger and she just looks at him because again She's one of the few people who sees Aang as a person and not as a tool or the avatar. She sees Aang, her friend. Right. 
So this is a super serious moment and really like not a turning point because we've seen their relationship grow. But when you said she's just tired, my brain went like a completely different direction where she's just like, come on, bud. I'm too tired. for Get down from there. <laughs> like a mom moment. Yeah. I'm too tired for this just crap. Like bags under her eyes. Hasn't slept for like days. Just like yep. stop throwing a temper tantrum. Get out. Let's, let's go. Come on. Get down from there. Oh, my gosh. Yep. <laughs> Quick note before we move over to Iroh and Zuko. The Siwang tribes here bear a pretty distinct resemblance to the dress and culture of the real-life Tuareg people mm. who inhabit the Saharan interior of North Africa. And probably a reference that more people understand and recognize is they also bear a resemblance to the Tusken Raiders from Star Wars. That, that's what I thought as well. I think we talked about that in the library where we saw them very briefly. I was like, it was like sand people. Tuscan Raiders. Yeah. <laughs> no way. You're here too. What is this? A crossover episode? <laughs> um, a casting thing really quickly. The father, Shamo, is voiced by Bill Bolander, who isn't like a big name in, in and of himself, but he has been in movies like Shawshank Redemption. He's been in the Star Trek Deep Space Nine series, and he's also been in RoboCop 2. Uh, his son, while it sounded like someone, he wasn't anyone I recognized. And when I went through his IMDb, mm. it was just a whole lot of nothing. So... Uh, it was very good portrayal. I just kind of wish he did more afterwards. Yeah. I always have this feeling when someone's like, like their IMDb pages ends after like five years. So like if it's like 2015, I'm like, are they dead? It's the first thing I look for is like, <laughs> are you still alive? And it's like, oh, yeah, they're still alive. I'm like, oh, OK. Yeah. You're just not it, working. It, it was just like a hobby or something. Yeah. And they're done with that now. Yeah. They moved yeah. on. They're into gardening now. <laughs> Probably teachers. I always envision all voice actors to be teachers afterwards for some reason. I don't know why. Oh, I could totally see that. Because yeah. a lot of teachers are well-spoken. I think that's why. That's probably it. Yeah. All right. Iroh and Zuko. Let's get back over to them. Mm -hmm. Iroh finally emerges from the back room of the flower shop, startling Zuko awake where he was sleeping against the wall while standing up. He tells Zuko that they will be heading to Ba Sing Se to hide in plain sight among the other refugees. A man appears at the door with passports for the two of them and reports that there are two men on the street who are looking for them. When Shin Fu and Master Yu enter the flower shop looking for Zuko and Iroh, however, they are nowhere to be found, even after Shin Fu knocks down the door to get into the back room. The two bounty hunters, so to speak, <laughs> decide to abandon the search for the firebenders and go back to hunting for Toph. As two potted plants are carted out of the oasis, Zuko and Iroh briefly peek out from under the lids. They escaped. Classic Looney Tunes maneuver right there. <laughs> Classic hiding in the pot trick. Mm-hmm. And that is our episode. That's it. Really an emotional whirlwind. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I have a couple bits of trivia that didn't quite fit into the episode, so I'm just going to dump them here as we usually do. Yeah, let's do it. Remember, in I think it was either the Northern air temple episode or the southern air temple that was the northern one that's no they where did they go second was it south or north i forget um they went to the southern air temple then the northern air temple so in the northern air temple episode there was a specific cable provider tv provider that mislabeled it on the tv guide when it was airing oh no guess what they did it again no when this episode originally aired some cable tv providers listed this episode as the deserter instead of the desert that is such a very different kind of episode yes. i mean to be fair there's a lot of like emotional turmoil in both of those episodes but they are very very different to be fair it's literally two letters difference yeah yeah also <laughs> so, that yeah there's that wow interesting yeah and this is the second episode in which Aang tries to find Appa. So the first yeah, episode being he was the swamp. Trying to, yeah. yeah, the swamp. Oh. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So that I found pretty interesting. I love, I love the cable mess ups. It just makes me laugh so much. Yeah, me yeah. too. Yeah. Oh, also speaking of callbacks, mm -hmm. if we all remember in the Siege of the North in the Water Tribe, the Northern Water Tribe, there was a map for a brief moment. And we talked about how there was such a level of detail in that scene where they researched the constellations mm -hmm. that would be in the sky at the moment. And the map appears in the desert. So mm. just want to link that for you. Uh, another link to the Siege of the North Part 2 is this is the second time that we've heard Aang speak in the Avatar state. The first time was in that episode. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Good point. Yep. 
Oh, I love that. The two links being in the same I know. The that same two episodes. That that's a coincidence. I I cannot think of a way that that would not be a coincidence, but I do like that. It's a happy accident as Bob Ross says. Indeed. All right, Greg, who is your MVP of this episode? Uh, I feel like everyone wants me to say Sokka and I really want to say Sokka, but I also don't want to say Sokka because <laughs> he doesn't really do much. I just really liked him in this episode. I think maybe maybe Fung because without Fung's oh, help, true. Iroh and Zuko would be pretty screwed. Yep. So I, I think I'm going to say Fung. All right. Well, I have to say Katara because yeah. many, many reasons, not just yes. because she's my favorite character. But with you saying that about Fung, really, when you think about it, the two stories we have here about Iroh and Zuko and then Team Avatar in the desert, Fung and Katara are the two individuals that get those groups out of their hot water situations. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so they definitely deserve to be our MVPs. Yes. What about the moral of the episode? Don't drink the cactus juice ever. <laughs> ever. Ever. Just don't do it. Just also, don't, do don't it. lick cave walls. Yeah. Just don't. Well, that, that you might be safer looking at cave wall than drinking cactus juice, I would think. All right. Let me rephrase. Don't lick sticky yellow substances off cave walls. That yes. is not honey. That is not cotton candy. <laughs> it is nothing edible. You're going to get sick. I can get behind that. Yep. All right. Well, that is all the time we have left for today's episode. Yes. Um, and as a friendly reminder, you can follow me over on Twitch where I stream occasionally. Or if you want to get a more direct line to us, uh, you can find us over on Twitter, always at Podcast Avatar and myself at Booster Greg. Or you can join the Geek Generation Discord. We have a whole channel on there where you can just post your memes from avatar you can post really cool things that you found on the internet like fan art and fan theories and stuff like that uh so that would be where you can find me you can also write to us at avatar the podcast at gmail.com that's right keep those emails coming we're going to get back around to egg mails throughout the episodes so you have that to look forward to you can also find me online at acorn bandit and also on joysons.com where i create enamel pins mm, and i create enamel pin yes <laughs> booster greg is officially an enamel pin creator that's he is right. the artist of the top pin which i adore i'm so excited about it it's so cool I'm so happy with the yes. two pins that we have our little off the pin and then our little top pin and now i have a new addiction because my brain is just thinking in pins now <laughs> all right let's chat yes <laughs> coming up next time zuko and the freedom fighters and a new hope all this and more next time on avatar, avatar the, the podcast, podcast. Avatar, the podcast, is a proud part of the Geek Generation Network. Remember to check out all of our other podcasts at thegeekgeneration.com. <laughs>